You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Exodus 4. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But Jesus said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, And the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, Put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they, will, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even those two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, who has, made God, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it, is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, oh my Lord, please send someone else. Then the, Lord, then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses and he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be your mouth, and with his mouth, and, I, and will teach both of you what to do. You shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand the staff with which you shall do the signs." Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, 
Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him go. It was, it was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Moses, go into the wilderness. The, the Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went out and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all of the words of the Lord, which he had sent him to speak, and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we are listening to your word, so we pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see, fix our eyes on Christ, even in a difficult and sometimes strange passages that you have given to us in your word. Help us to see Christ, and we pray for these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you this evening. It's good to see several of you back from school for the summer, just as some folks have now left for the summer. Uh, it's Good to be back with all of you. Uh, we are now officially in a soccer crazy city. Yeah, that's, that's great. Uh, New Mexico United has had a great week, many awesome games, and it's uh, fun for our church to be connected to that team in many ways. Uh, in most worldwide soccer leagues, they don't end their season with like a culminating tournament and then a final championship game like most American leagues do. At the end of a season in most soccer leagues, uh, you just count up the points from the season. You get three points for a win, one point for a draw, and zero points for a loss. Kyle Junick like, hates this, uh, but he wants a, he wants a championship game. Uh, but while it may not be as exciting without a championship game at the end of a season, this kind of process rewards like longevity over the whole season. This year, uh, in England's top league, Liverpool, was trying to win that top league for the first time in 1990. They played 38 games this year, and they lost one game. Like the dream season of all dream seasons for Liverpool. And they lost the league uh, to Manchester City, who bested their dream season. Uh, it's incredible. But uh, while Liverpool and Manchester City are like littered with some of the world's best players. Their, their payrolls are just through the roof. Everyone loves to watch greatness, that's true, but there's something universally human about us loving a good underdog story. In 2016, this small little team in England called Leicester City, uh, they won, the, pay, they won the, the league title with a payroll of like 18 million pounds, which is just nothing. Uh, they were 5,000 to 1 odds winners at the beginning of the season, which makes them like the most unlikely champion in any league in sports in like human history. And that's like not an overstatement. A story is better when there are great results from unexpected or weak actors. Like seriously, try to think about any good sports movie that's ever been made, like any, not just good sports movie, but any sports movie at all that's ever been made, and it's always about an underdog, right? Like, the, I racked my brain this week, and maybe, like, the Friday Night Lights movie was, like, the only one where there wasn't an underdog. Try your best. Maybe you can fill me in if you can think of one. In some ways, Exodus is an underdog story. Like, Egypt is the New York Yankees, 
and Israel is like some small minor league team from West Virginia or something. But what makes Exodus truly a compelling underdog story isn't that it's like teamwork makes the dream work or like if we just believe in ourselves, we can beat the mighty New York Yankee Egyptians or something like that. But what makes it compelling is that it's actually not an underdog story. It is, but it isn't. Over the next few weeks, we're going to see that Exodus is a story of a battle of the gods in which the God of Israel, Yahweh, has no rivals. It's actually no contest. But beginning tonight, God will use and work through weak, through stubborn, through unexpected people, the most unexpected actors, to accomplish his extraordinary purposes. In the second half of chapter three that we didn't finish up last week, and then the first half of chapter four that you heard Ben read tonight, we'll first see that God sends through weakness. And then in the second half of chapter four that we'll see that God saves through stubbornness. God sends through weakness and he saves through stubbornness. So first of all, God sends through weakness. Last week, we saw God tell Moses that he was going to send Moses back to Egypt to deliver his people out of slavery. We saw Moses initially ask God two questions that we were maybe willing to give Moses the benefit of the doubt in, where he essentially asked God last week, uh, who am I and who are you? To which God answered the first question with, it doesn't matter who you are because I am with you. And he answered the second question with, I am and will continue to be what I am and forever will be. That's who I am. So in the second half of chapter three, Moses is to go back to Egypt and tell the Israelites exactly what God told Moses in the first half of the chapter. The person who speaks for God is to merely just say God's words. There's nothing else that's really required. Just go and say what I told you to say. That's all you got to do, Moses. But properly setting expectations, God tells Moses that it won't actually be that easy. In verse 19 of chapter 3, God says, But I know the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. God knows the future, and he's telling Moses exactly what is going to happen. And not only that Pharaoh will let them go, even though it's going to be somewhat somewhat difficult and it's going to take some mighty works on God's parts to make it happen, it gets even better. God says in verse 21 and following of chapter three, and I will give this people favor, give this people Israel favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Whether this is some kind of recompense, like back payment for the past 400 years of slavery, or it's simply just to show the complete and utter victory of Israel, of God over Egypt and Egypt's gods, either way, it's clear that it won't be the male warriors that one might expect to plunder Egypt. It will be the women, not those who you typically think to come and absolutely desolate the most powerful empire on earth. So chapter three ends, and we might expect Moses, after hearing all of this great news, to respond with such excitement of what God will do that he's gonna like hike up his robe and like take off down the mountain and hoof it back to Egypt to proclaim this good news. But Moses' questions are just beginning. In chapter four, he moves from who am I and who are you to now, but what if no one listens to me? 
Like maybe for the last 40 years, Moses has the last words that he had heard from any of his countrymen tumbling around in his ears. Remember when he's trying to break up a fight of two uh, Hebrew slaves, they say, who are you? Or who made you a prince and a judge over us? And so he's thinking like, I'm gonna go and they're just gonna respond the same way the last time I spoke to them or something like that. But to this, God in his patience tells Moses to just, hey, what's that, what's that over there? What's that in your hand? He's like, yeah, it's a staff. He's like, take it and throw it on the ground. This staff which about, is about to become a really big character, actually. A stick of wood is going to become a pretty big character throughout the rest of this book and then in the books to follow in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. This staff now makes its first appearance and it turns into a snake. God turns this staff into the very symbol of Pharaoh. Like think about an Egyptian Pharaoh that you've seen in like the snake headdress that he would be wearing. God turns this, this staff into that. And Moses, like any sane human on earth, runs away. Like, I hate snakes. I hate them. Like the old idiom, like any, the only good snake is a dead snake. I know that's not like ecologically defensible, but theologically, I think I've got a pretty good case. Anyway, Moses understandably runs from this thing, especially if it's like a cobra or something. But God tells Moses to not only come back, and not only pick up this snake, but to come and pick up this snake by its tail, which is about the dumbest thing that you can do with a dangerous snake. And I think when we read this story, we kind of just like blow by it when we read it. But like, how long did that whole scene take? Like, I imagine like Moses like being a little kid on the high dive, like one, two, three, not yet. And then just going over and over, like trying to grab this. Maybe if it was like, grabbing it by the back of its head. But seriously, God is asking Moses to, in faith, grab this snake by its very tail, where it will come around and possibly kill you. But weak as we'll certainly see Moses' faith to be, he had to take God seriously at his promises, or at his word to take this thing by the tail, and he does. And sure enough, it doesn't kill him. This, this snake turns back into a staff. God continues to show his power over creation by giving Moses an instantaneous hand of leprosy on one moment and then in the next moment purifying or healing him from the very same sickness. Perhaps symbolic of how God would purify and cleanse his people. And then lastly, God tells Moses of how he'll turn the Nile to blood. This is a preview of his authority over creation and over the Egyptian gods which are to come in the 10 plagues. So surely now, after these three wonders that God has shown Moses, surely now Moses is ready to run down the mountain and getting up back to Egypt. But the excuses, they just keep coming. In verse 10, Moses says that he's not eloquent. He is slow of speech and tongue. This could mean several things, and there are several different theories out there. Like maybe Moses has a stutter, or he's just not very rhetorically persuasive. Or maybe he's just been out of Egypt for 40 years, and he like, no longer speaks the language very well. For any of you who may speak a second language, think about how quickly that second language can go away when you don't use it, especially for 40 years. In the end, though, what exactly Moses is afraid of is irrelevant because in verses 11 and 12, Yahweh says to him, who has made man's mouth? Who, ha who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. 
If it's a stutter that Moses is worried about, God is saying, don't you think that I don't know that? Don't you think that I made the tongue that stutters? If you don't think that you're very smart, don't you know that I created you? I created your mind and your mouth, your ability to form arguments or something? If it's you think that you've been away from the Egyptian language for too long, are you implying that I've come too late? That my timing is all wrong? I've created you, Moses. I know you. I know you better than you know yourself. And I'm sending you to Egypt to preach the good news of deliverance and salvation. I will be with you. I will be with your mouth. There's maybe even a I am, a little play on words there, of I am of your mouth. So Moses really is Leicester City here. He's the unlikeliest of underdogs. I mean, the odds of Moses like rolling into Egypt on his own, telling the most important and powerful king on the earth to now let his army of slave labor go, the odds of that are like far worse than 5,000 to one. But that's the entire point. God is going to use weak, he's going to use insignificant means and people to accomplish extraordinary purposes. He's going to work these incredible signs so that Moses, so that Egypt, so that Israel, so that the entire world might know that Yahweh is the God of Israel. That the entire world might know that Yahweh is the God of all creation. The story of Moses can then be the story of the disciples who were also hearing from God's word in the person of Jesus and who were weak and who were stubborn and who were also full of excuses, but from which Jesus in Matthew 28 also sends them from another mountaintop to go preach the good news to captives. And then this becomes our story as well as his sent disciples today. When someone becomes a disciple or follower of Jesus, it's not just that this person uh, turns in faith to Christ has their sins forgiven, and then just twiddles their thumbs for the next 10, 20, 50, 70 years, waiting for death or waiting for Jesus to return. Jesus, when he calls someone to follow him, gives this follower a job. He gives us a commission. The mountaintop sending from Matthew 28 is most often referred to as the Great Commission, is this, where Jesus tells his disciples to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And then, a few verses later, the last verse of the book of Matthew, listen for Exodus 3 and 4 language here, Jesus says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The job that Jesus gives to his followers is the same job that Yahweh gave to Moses, to go and to speak my words of deliverance, of salvation, and then lead these people into following me more closely in faith. We'll have lots to think through about the nature of slavery, about the nature of the bondage of sin that God has freed us from. We'll also have much to think through about how former taskmasters uh, that we have been freed from can even beckon us back to return to the slavery which we've been freed from. But 
if we do understand, if we do see clearly that which God has saved us from and to, then we ought to see our unbelieving friends and our unbelieving neighbors still suffering under the same old slavery that we once suffered under, and we would want them to experience the freedom in Christ that we have enjoyed. What Charles Spurgeon once said ought to be true of our daily outlook, where he said, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. That's a good sentiment. I think we could like run out of here with a lot of motivation from that. And while that ought to be true from our own experience, how often are we more like Moses? Who am I? Who are you? What if they don't listen? I'm not very persuasive. I don't speak that well. All to which God says to Moses and to us, you are nobody, but I will be with you. I will be with your mouth. So stop freaking out. That's the whole point. Two months ago, I told you about a denomination-wide push of evangelism called Who's Your One, not Who's Your 35 People that you'd like to see come to Christ because of your constant evangelism with them in their lives. Not who's your entire neighborhood, but who is one person in your life that needs to clearly hear the gospel out of your mouth, the mouth that God will be with. And not necessarily one person that you can guarantee repentance from. Pharaoh does not hear God's word and then positively respond. But as Mark Dever says, we do not fail in our evangelism if we faithfully tell the gospel to someone who is not subsequently converted. We fail only if we do not faithfully tell the gospel. And so Marcy and I have been making and are building friendships with a couple of other parents on kids' baseball teams. I hope and pray that one day you all get to meet Ethan and his family and Maureen and her family. But we are weak people with unpersuasive rhetoric. We are jars of clay, as Paul would later describe us as, clay pots which hold the invaluable treasure of the gospel, so that, as Paul says, the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us, not on our power of persuasion, not on our answer to every question and objection, but the power of God. That God didn't just put a dream team of the most powerful, most beautiful, most wealthy, most persuasive people together, but he put us together, which is good. And he's using us as his mouthpiece. And this is probably the whole point of Moses' staff as well. Not just that the lowly shepherd would lead Israel out of Egypt, well, that's true, but it's almost as if God is showing Moses and then later showing others Like, you want to see who I am? Do you want to see the power that I am sending you with? Like, look at that stick over there. Just look at that. Let me show you what I can do with even that. And that stick would just not, not only just become a snake, but later God would use it to bring plagues on Egypt. God would use this stick to divide the sea. He would use the stick to bring water from the rock. And Francis Schaeffer once said of this stick, consider the mighty ways in which God uses a dead stick of wood. God so used a a stick of wood could be a banner cry for each of us. Though we are limited and weak in talent, weak in physical energy and psychological strength, we are not less than a stick of wood. But as the rod of Moses had to become the rod of God, so that which is me must become the me of God. 
then I can become useful in God's hands. Thinking of ourselves not just as some random thing that may or may not actually be able to do anything, but the me of God that God wants to use as a tool for his purposes. I suppose it's entirely possible that God could have just, without Moses, like sent an angel of death in one night, and the next morning, every Egyptian is dead. I guess he could have done this. And then Israel could have just walked on out, or they could have stayed as the new kings of Egypt. But usually, when God acts in the world, it is through human means. He uses weak and crooked sticks to draw straight lines. Just as I suppose that he could have decided when he wants to make someone a Christian, that person goes to sleep one night and then they wake up the next morning and a new Christian. But that's not the way that God operates. He invites his people to act as his mouthpiece of salvation, of deliverance. The power belongs to God, but he is using ordinary people as the means to accomplish his extraordinary purposes. He's inviting us into his saving rescue mission of the world, which just gives us so much meaning now as we leave the building and as we begin a new week. So let's keep asking each other in our GCs, asking each other in our discipleship groups, who's your one? Who is the one person in your life that you are intentionally praying for, that you are inviting in in hospitality, that you are sharing the gospel with? And while maybe you actually do trust God to be with your mouth, Maybe you actually do want to be better prepared in evangelistic conversations. So we're already talking about an evangelism training or a class or something sometime in the future. In the meantime, come and ask us. Come and ask me and Clint, Kyle, Ryan, your GC leader, anybody who you know who's just particularly uh, excited about sharing the gospel. How do you do this? I, I need to learn. I want to learn how to share the gospel with a friend. We want to help you in that. And yet... Still, even knowing all of this, Moses and we can still just keep making excuses. We'll now move from the reality that God sends through weakness to a second half of this text, that God saves through stubbornness. After running out of any other available excuses, Moses shows his cards. He shows the real reason that he's been waffling here. When in verse 13 he says, oh, my Lord, send someone else. He just doesn't want to do it. As one commentator says, Moses doesn't have an eloquence problem. He has an obedience problem. After all, he doesn't seem to be all that worried about a give and take with someone more powerful than him. He doesn't worry about his eloquence with God. He just keeps talking with him. Just mostly with Pharaoh and with the Israelites who may or may not really like him. He just doesn't want to do this thing that God is sending him to do. And how often can we be in the same boat? Like, I know all of the theology of evangelism. I know of God's power and his sovereignty. I know all that. Just, I don't want to. Please send someone else. And God has been patient with Moses up until this point, but now we read in verse 14 that God actually gets angry with this level of defiance. Like, what are you doing, Moses? Why wouldn't you want to be the mouthpiece of the living God? Why wouldn't you want to be the front man of the greatest rescue mission of all time? So God says, fine, fine. Your brother Aaron, he'll be the front guy. He'll do the speaking. God will accomplish his purposes. And it's kind of a bummer here for Moses. 
It's kind of a bummer for those who he is called to speak to be giving this job away to others. It's like giving away the, the opportunity for, to be like the last kick of a penalty kick shootout. The opportunity to be a part of the excitement and the glory and just say, you want to take it? You want to do it? I, I, don't, I don't want to. But Moses seems okay with this arrangement for Aaron to be the guy. Or we at least don't read of any more questions or objections. So God sends him out and on his way out, he says in verse 17, hey, don't forget the stick. Take the stick. So Moses comes down with his father-in-law, to his father-in-law Jethro to tell him that he's coming back to Egypt. This guy, his father-in-law, who has shown incredible kindness, incredible generosity, hospitality over the years. Moses is now leaving his family. He is now leaving his wealth. And as we sang last week, he's letting goods and kindred go. He's leaving his family and his wealth. And Jethro sends Moses and Zipporah and their sons to Egypt. And then then God tells Moses this in verses 21 through 23. When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power. He's like reminding him. Remember what I told you up on the mountain. But I will harden his heart. This is new. So that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Guys, can you do me a favor? Uh, Can we just hold off on all of the questions about God hardening Pharaoh's heart for this week? There's going to be lots of weeks and lots of opportunities for us to like flip over to Romans 9 and all of that stuff in the weeks and months to follow. Uh, But don't let that bit of God hardening Pharaoh's heart distract you from what Moses is to actually tell Pharaoh. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. That could be a theme or a summary of the entire book of Exodus. And it's hard to overestimate just how important this verse is, not just to the book of Exodus, but to the rest of the Bible. Israel isn't just some random collection of people. And while it's horrible how these people suffered under wicked oppression, it's not just that this nation was being exploited and that they were being oppressed that causes God to act. It's that this nation together was God's firstborn son. Firstborn, not meaning like the chronological first, but like the place of preeminence, the place of inheritance. And it's because Israel is God's son that Israel is so dear to God that he will now act. Like, what do you feel when you, your phone starts buzzing of an Amber Alert or you see news of a missing child? Perhaps anger, perhaps sadness, or hurt, but what if the Amber Alert was for your kid? That's a whole different level of heightened emotion. What if your child was the one missing? And so Pharaoh is to hear and to understand that God has now arrived to get his son. He is not here for halfway compromises every other weekend or something. He is here for business. He is here for his child's freedom. Freedom from slavery and freedom to life with the Father. 
And the firstborn son theme then gets, it keeps on getting developed as we go. We get this really, really strange three-verse story. And it's so short that it could be easy to miss. And it's so weird that it could be easy to blow by and say, well, that's weird. Next. And difficult texts like these, though, are here for a reason. These texts can be opportunities like fledge the flying horse at the end of the last battle of the Chronicles of Narnia for us to say yes, an opportunity that I do not understand, but further up and further in, that I might know God more deeply, even if it's difficult to initially understand. And this is weird. As soon as God sends Moses Moses to Egypt, on the way, now God wants to kill Moses. He has sent him, and then the very next verse, he intends to kill Moses. Like, what in the world is going on? But presumably, while Moses is really sick, Zipporah, his wife, circumcises their firstborn son. We're not really sure how she knew to do this or not. And then this now cut-off foreskin becomes the bloody antidote to Moses' sickness, to his deathbed. That scene's not in the movie. (laughs) It's very, very weird. So first of all, beginning with Abraham in Genesis 17, the sign of God's covenant with Israel would be that all males were to be circumcised. And this begins with Abraham himself, a very, very old man in Genesis 17 before he's even had a son. His sexuality is claimed by God. It's a powerful thing. His virility is claimed for God's service in order that the promise of a son would be fulfilled. Immediately following circumcision in Genesis 17, we see the very next chapter, we see a contrasted vision of sexuality in Sodom, of violence. Sexuality as something that is cut off from fruitfulness between man and woman based on promises. The sexual world around Abraham was a world of sexual violence. You were either exerting your sexual violence on others or were receiving it. So Abraham is to circumcise his foreskin over and against the world. That he will not find fulfillment in some virile, erotic quest, but he will find fulfillment in raising a family. And this bloody act was to be an act of faith. Of a person and of faith collectively as a nation which is consecrated to God and set apart from the nation's. In a few short chapters, Moses is going to be leading Israel out of Egypt. Spoiler alert, if you didn't know the story. And he will be stressing the importance of circumcision for the entire nation. As they are leaving after the Passover has happened, Moses is telling the people, those who have not been circumcised need to be. Moses is essentially telling them God's commands, our identity as his people... All of this must be understood. All of this must be heard, must be taken in, must be acted upon and obeyed in faith. And yet, here is God's man, not anywhere close to being in a place to make that kind of command to the nation in good conscience as he now heads back to Egypt because he himself has not acted in this act of faith with his own son. Instead, he is in a place of either willful rebellion and disobedience or at best, a place of indifference. 
to what God desires and demands for his people. Either way, God is going to save through stubbornness. And so in a foreshadow of the Passover scene that will follow, which is intimately tied to circumcision as well in chapters 12 and 13, God is going to save through blood. The blood of the firstborn son here keeps Moses alive from death in the same way that the blood of the lamb and the Passover will keep the firstborn sons alive from death. And God will use the rest of Exodus and throughout the rest of the Bible to show this theme of blood to be the simultaneous place of life and of death. Usually showing the bloody death of one to be the place of vital life for another. And here's where and how this story is related and why it is placed where it's placed. Moses is to tell Pharaoh that God is here for his firstborn son. If Pharaoh doesn't let the firstborn son go, God will hit him in the same place. But Moses doesn't seem to understand this theme of sonship. He doesn't seem to understand the promises of life and of death and of slavery and of deliverance. This is yet another Exodus story in Moses' life where he's again saved by the women in his life and he is learning to leave the Egypt of his past life behind before he can be in a place to lead God's son out of an exodus of their own. And throughout Israel's history and into the prophets, God will keep calling Israel my son. In Hosea 11, God says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The apostle Matthew will later say that this guy named Joseph takes his wife, takes his son, to Egypt to escape death from another oppressive king. And Matthew tells us that this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Matthew is setting up Jesus as God's true firstborn son. Like Israel, Jesus will come up out of Egypt. Like Israel, Jesus will pass through the waters, not of a, not of a divided sea, but of the waters of his baptism under the divided heavens. He will move from the waters of baptism into the wilderness, not for 40 years, but for 40 days, repeating Israel's history of temptation and using the very words of God from their desert temptation to succeed in obedience where Israel failed in stubborn disobedience. Then he will come back from the wilderness in the east and cross the Jordan River to begin his conquest of the kingdom. Remarkable. All the while, God can announce from heaven in Matthew 3, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then in Matthew 17, up on another mountain, with Moses, no less, God announces of Jesus, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Israel is God's son, but they are full of disobedience. Jesus is God's true Israel, God's true son, one with the Father, He has no sin, and even though Israel had received mercy, God's true son who has no sin does not receive God's mercy. The bloody death of the true firstborn obedient son becomes the place of vital life for the stubborn many, the place of antidote for sin's sickness. Jesus isn't just the firstborn son, but as Paul says in Romans 8, 29, he is the firstborn among many brothers. Though completely beloved by the Father, Jesus receives the full weight of God's judgment against sin 
that those who are not children of God might become children of God, might be counted as Jesus' little brothers and receive all of the promises of sonship and of inheritance. Or to again quote from one of the early church fathers, the son of God became the son of man that sons of men might become sons of God. Incredible. It was for the weak and stubborn sons of men that God would do all of this. God knew how weak, how afraid Moses would be when he called him from the bush. God knew how stubborn and hard-hearted Israel would be when he calls them out of slavery and then they prove themselves to be in the desert. And yet it is for this excuse-making, stubborn, hard-hearted people, self-worshipping people, because of his great love for them, that he would save and rescue them. And what happens at the end of chapter 4? All of Moses' fears and excuses, at least for the time being, turn out to be for nothing. Verse 30, Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people, and the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. They believed. They bowed their heads. They worshiped. God has finally, once again, come to his people like he did in the days of Abraham, and they are responding in the way that God has created them to respond in worship. Who is God calling you toward? Maybe where is God calling you toward? Maybe you've recently been feeling God calling you toward not just your friends and neighbors, but to leave goods and kindred go altogether. To move overseas that those in bondage might know God and become his children like our families over here have done. Remember them. Pray for them ongoingly as they have taken this call very seriously. Perhaps This is a call for your life as well. Consider the lengths to which God has gone to for your freedom. Out of love for the living Christ, let's all keep moving together out of our excuse-making, out of our stubborn disobedience and into deeper worship and into greater love for our neighbor and for our unbelieving friends and the world around us. Further up and further in. Knowing God more deeply, and loving others more passionately. Let's pray. Father, we want to know you. Even though our excuses might suggest otherwise, most of us actually want more and more people in this world to also know you. God, give us a more clear glimpse of your glory. Help that glory be the thing that fuels us and sends us. Forgive us of our stubbornness. And we trust in the bloody, life-giving antidote of the firstborn son to not only save us, but to transform us as your people. Father, for your own namesake, might each of us see someone in our lives come to faith this year. Father, we want to see that and we... We respond now eagerly in faith, not because we have anything to offer, but that the power of the gospel might belong to you and not to us. Make your name and power great and famous in our city and beyond. For the sake of Christ, we pray all these things. Amen.
hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.